0: Connecting Minds is a space dedicated to honoring the amazing authors, researchers, clinicians, artists, and entrepreneurs who are contributing to our collective evolution or simply making the world a better place. These thought-provoking conversations are intended to expand our horizons, so come with an open mind and let us grow together. Here is your host, Christian Yordanov.
1: Hello and welcome to the Connected Minds Podcast. My name is Christian Jordanov, and thank you so much for joining me today on this eighth episode of the podcast. Today I have for you a great conversation I had with Kyle Buller, who is one of the two guys, along with Joe Moore, that uh, run Psychedelics Today, which is one of the best resources out there on all things psychedelics. They have a great website and top-notch podcast that I would highly recommend you checking out if you are at all all interested in the space. On the conversation with Kyle today, we discussed his near-death experience and basically how that shaped who he is today, how it shaped his interests into exploring transpersonal psychology, um, other non-ordinary states of consciousness, of course, psychedelics, breathwork. And things like that, so he has a lot of great insights. He's been in the space for a long time, and I'm just glad to be able to sit, sit down with such interesting individuals that are contrib- contributing so much to the betterment of humanity, really, because that's what, at the, at the end of the day, that's what the podcast is about. Yeah, so I'm very thankful that Kyle joined me for this conversation. So a little bit about Kyle. Kyle's interest in exploring non-ordinary states of consciousness began at the age of 16 when he suffered a traumatic snowboarding accident. After this near-death experience, Kyle's life changed dramatically. Kyle subsequently earned his BA in transpersonal psychology from Burlington College, where he focused on studying the healing potential of non-ordinary states of consciousness by exploring shamanism, Reiki, local medicinal plants, and plant medicine, holotropic breathwork, and other modalities. Uh, Kyle has been studying breathwork since October 2010. He also has uh, an MS in clinical mental health counseling with an emphasis in somatic psychology from Prescott College. Kyle's clinical background in mental health consists of working with at-risk teenagers in crisis and with individuals experiencing an early episode of psychosis and providing counseling to undergraduate and graduate students in a university setting. Kyle also facilitates transpersonal breathwork workshops around the New Jersey area. Yeah, so very he's very knowledgeable in this area of non-ordinary states of consciousness, really a wealth of knowledge. And I'm so glad that Kyle came on the podcast. i um, course glad to share our conversation with you let me know how you like it show notes will be on christianyordanov.com, where i have links to kyle's um, resources his podcasts website and so on social media so without further ado here's our guest kyle buller all right so today on the connecting minds podcast we have kyle buller kyle thank you so much uh on joining us for joining us
2: thanks for having me excited to be here
1: so um I'm going to read your bio at the start in the intro but uh do you want to give folks an idea of what your background is and how you got into you know the stuff that you're into today?
2: Yeah, sure. Um try to give you the short version. <laughs> uh yeah, so my background is I have a bachelor's in transpersonal psychology and a master's in clinical mental health counseling with a focus on um, in somatic psychology. I really started to get into a lot of this work, I guess, at like an early age. I had a um, pretty traumatic snowboarding accident, um, had like a near-death experience, and that just kind of opened me up to a, like a... a a new world i guess a new way of seeing the world and so i guess my journey has been really a process of trying to uh, ground that experience integrate it and really try to figure out i guess like what happened there and so i've yeah been on a healing path for for quite a while and just exploring lots of different transpersonal uh, realms which led me to um co-create this project psychedelics today along with joe moore um almost over four years ago we we launched in 2016 um our our first episode and so yeah do a lot of education in the psychedelic world uh, which has been fun and um, a a big portion of our background is in the breathwork world been training with uh, transpersonal breathwork for about 10 years or so Mm
1: -hmm. awesome yeah so yeah these are all topics that I'd like to touch on a little bit. Let's start with your um near death experience what what was that like and kind of what on on the tail end of it what you know what were you thinking what was what was going on in your head around that time
2: um you mean actually like during the experience
1: yeah so during the experience and then after and like any revelations or insights that you had this kind of stuff
2: yeah Yeah. So I guess I'll give a little context of of what happened there. Um, I was a sophomore in high school and I decided to go snowboarding one night out in the Poconos. I grew up in New Jersey and uh, I was doing some night snowboarding. And, you know, it was kind of warm during the day and there was a lot of um, mounds kind of kicked up and I was going around a pretty sharp turn and there just happened to be a mound of snow in a blind spot. Um, The way the the lighting was kind of hitting everything, I didn't see it until I was up on top of it. Um, And as I started to go around this turn, yeah, there is this mound. And I said, Oh, shit, if I hit this, I'm going to die. I need to either try to stop or turn. And everything really started to go in slow motion. And I remember just kind of processing like a million thoughts a second of like, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do here? And it just felt like no matter how much I tried to stop or turn, um, you know, I was just going too fast. And I hit this mound of snow. And kind of time sped up flew through the air about 30 feet or so and nose of my snowboard hit my shoulder hit and I I heard a loud pop and I immediately thought you know I I either snapped a rib or you know something in my shoulder just immense pain right away um I slid down the hill a little bit. And I remember just, you know, feeling this pain. I couldn't breathe. Felt like I got the wind knocked out of me. And um, I was just laying face down in the snow, grunting, kind of like these death grunts. like uh!" And uh, my brother and his friend came up behind me. And, um, you know, they, they saw that I was pretty hurt. So they went to go get ski patrol. And so I was just laying on the mountain by myself. Um, and I just kept watching all these people whiz by me, parents, kids, and, and nobody stopped to really say, Hey, are you okay? Besides these, uh, two punk ass snowboarders. Um, and they stopped to ask me if I was okay, if I had a light and they were smoking cigarettes, but I'm really thankful that they stopped by. Um, and, you know, these are the people that, like, I would probably be judgmental about and be like, oh, they're the ones that hang out in the terrain park and throw snowballs at you while you try to do tricks and call you really nasty names. Um, but yeah. those were the ones that, that stopped. Um, and they put a snowboard in front of me. So when people were coming around the turn, um, they didn't just run right into me. Um so my brother came back about like 30, 40 minutes later and said, you know, nobody's coming. And I was like, well, wh- what do you mean? Nobody's coming. He's like, I don't know. I just, I told the lifty, but, um, they didn't really do too much. Um, so luckily it's a small mountain, um, and there's patrol that comes by every so often. So luckily, you know, uh, a random ski patroller stopped, saw that I was injured and, uh, try to take some vitals and brought me down. They, they got a toboggan, um, Brought, brought me down to the first aid. So when I was in the first aid station, um, you know, the, the, the responders were kind of freaking out saying like, you know, your ribs are fine. There's no bruising. There's no swelling. Um, but you have really low vitals. Your pulse is low. You look really pale. Um, you know, we think you have internal injuries. And at that moment, the first thought that pops in my head was, Oh shit, I'm going to die tonight. And Jesus. I, grew up and I wasn't very religious, but, um, you know, at that point I started praying to God and I said, God, you know, I never really, uh, talked to you or anything like that. And I don't even know if I believe in you, but I I just don't really want to die tonight. Please, please help me. Um, so thankfully they, they called for a helicopter and medevaced me out. And I just learned this a few years ago, um, talking to my dad, I guess after they, they, um, they got me in the ambulance to take me to the helipad. Uh, I guess one of the first responders just looked at my dad and said, your son's in his golden hours. He may not make it. Because um, I guess they knew I had massive probably internal bleeding or injury, and, and it was pretty serious. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, luckily they medevaced me out um, and, you know, it was New Year's Eve. I was supposed to go to some, some of my friend's house and my my phone's just blowing up and, you know, uh, it just kept ringing and ringing while I was getting medevaced to the hospital and um, found out later a lot of my friends were pretty pissed. They thought I was ignoring them, <laughs> but they didn't know what was actually going on. Um, so, by the time I got to the hospital, uh, my uncle was actually a first responder, for that county and town. And so my dad called him and, and he met me there. And I remember as they took me out of the helicopter to bring me to the ER, um, I started to, you know, start started to like fade in and out of consciousness. I knew something was really wrong. Um, but death kind of started to leave my mind. It it didn't feel as scary as it, it did when I was in the first aid station when, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you might have internal injury. And the only thing I could think of I'm going to die, um, but by the time I got to the the ER, I started to have a feeling of euphoria, um, and my uncle was standing beside me, reassuring me that I was going to be okay. That he knew a lot of the doctors and nurses, and and they were good people. Um, I had this really interesting thought. While he was uh standing beside me, thinking like here's somebody that's family, like blood related, and where I'm about to go, i can't take anybody with me. This is my own personal journey, and we all are on our own personal journey and and uh it's just interesting that you know here's somebody that is so close in in blood lineage that I can't take anybody where i'm about to go mm-hmm. and so at that moment the the nurses are trying to like take off my clothes, take off my ski boots um or snowboard boots and you know I could hear a lot of different things. Uh I could hear one nurse say like I can't get a pulse on him. His veins in his upper body are collapsing. They're sitting there jabbing me with needles trying to get an IV in my arm. Um I guess you know I heard them say yeah, uh, veins are collapsing. Uh, his yeah, his veins in his upper body are collapsing. I remember they had to um I guess get an IV tapped in my femoral artery. I just remember them getting this huge needle and and my uncle looking at me and being like, sorry for you. It's going to hurt. Um, Yeah. And at that point it felt like it's always so hard to put into words, but it felt like a part of me entered into this oceanic feeling. It was like consciousness is everywhere. And I started to tap into this like ocean of of uh, of knowledge, of emotion, it was like I could feel everything in the room at that point, point. Um, and I could feel all the anxiety of the nurses rushing around because they they knew I was in pretty bad shape. But there was a part of me internally that just was really content with everything. Um, as I'm watching all this chaos unfold, I'm just kind of sitting there uh, or laying there, being a little blissed out. And so, they told me, you know, they needed to uh, figure out what was going on. So, they did a sonogram on me and found that I had massive internal bleeding. You know, they're like, this is why you feel sick. This is why you're in a lot of pain. You have massive internal bleeding. You have blood all in your abdomen. Um, You know, we need to get you to a CAT scan to see where the bleeding's coming from. So when they uh, got they they got they got me a CAT scan and remember sitting in the machine and this is when things I guess really started to take off uh, was the pain was just so unbearable um, every time I took a breath in it hurt so bad um, I felt like I was submerged in a tub of ice water and because there's no blood circulating you know through my body and. Um, it was just so cold and you know, I could just hear the doctors on the other side of the room give me instruction, like, you know, breathe in, breathe out. And I really started to um, you know, close my eyes and, and start started to go inward. And I could just hear the doctor say, Don't fall asleep, Kyle, don't fall asleep, stay with us, stay with us. And the only thing that I could think of was like, Well well, that's the only thing I can do. It's it's just I, I can't deal with this pain anymore. Um, and as I started to really fade away, I was I felt like I was on the other side of the room with the doctors. I was having like this inner and outer body experience. Um, It's so hard to kind of put into words and explain, but it was like I was really in my internal experience, but I was also everywhere at once. Um, And there's this, I I say it's like a voice, or it felt like this, this like I don't know, white light that was kind of coming over me, (laughs) like a ball of light. And, you know, I don't think it was necessarily an external voice, It felt like maybe it was like internalized, but something came over me and said, um, you know, you're going home. Relax into this experience. Um, You're going back to the stars where we all come from. Um, And, you know, this physical life is going to cease to exist, but you're going to continue onward. And the more you struggle with it, the harder it's going to be. So the more that you can relax, the easier this transition will be for you. And so at that point, I really started to relax into it. Um, I started to kind of go inward. It was like this going inward meant kind of going outward, too, in in a sense. And it felt really blissful and beautiful um filled with a lot of love and um the doctors ripped me out of the didn't rip me out but they took me out of the cat scan machine and then um Brought me to the the operating room, and you know they told me that I ruptured my spleen and I had massive internal bleeding, and they needed to do emergency surgery. And so the last things that I remember, the last words I heard was they were telling me something about anesthesia, and they, they were going to start counting backwards. And then, um, yeah, the last two words I heard was, "Should we use an electric razor or a straight razor?" <laughs> And uh, and then I just, I, I completely blacked out. And, um, you know, I, I woke up uh, as they were wheeling me back to the the ICU after the surgery. And I remember as they were wheeling me, I just like shot back in my body. It felt like my soul just like woke up. I, I came back and I shot up um, out of the stretcher and I just violently was shaking. And uh, I could just hear the, the nurses say, he's awake and he's cold. And then I passed out and, and finally woke up in ICU with my family all around me, um, really kind of worried and also really relieved that I was okay.
1: That is such a, I sometimes bang on about how badly we're dealing with the chronic disease crisis. But that's one thing about our medical system is in these, it's just miraculous what they can do to, to bring someone back from the brink.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I always say Western medicine is wonderful for emergencies. Um, you know, without it, I wouldn't be here. Uh, yeah, but yeah. for chronic, we're, we don't do too well, I think, in preventative health care. <laughs> yeah, but for emergency medicine, I mean, it's it's life-saving.
1: Yeah, yeah. So what, what uh, can you uh, discuss with us the... Um recovery process what was that like for you kind of integrating back into normal life after that experience
2: yeah thanks for asking um yeah it was definitely a process uh you know the first few days in the hospital were super hazy but um, as i started to really kind of regain consciousness in a sense of like trying to understand what just happened um it started to become really difficult. Um, you know, the analogy that I make is it, it felt like I woke up with a map on my chest, um, and the map really kind of showed me how the world worked in in some regard. And um, you know, whether that's ultimate truth or not, I don't know. But that's how I felt at that moment. It was like I saw something how how some of this works. <laughs> and it felt true to me in that moment. And so, you know, coming back from that, I really was trying to figure out like, you know, what happened to me? Where did I go? Who who did I speak to? Um, and I didn't have this like traditional near-death experience that people talk about of like going down the tunnel of light, meeting, you know, maybe angels or they go into some sort of city and maybe they they um, meet some of their ancestors. Um it was like, I just had this felt knowing, this felt sense of knowing deep in my bones that part of my spirit, soul, something went somewhere. And it was like, I couldn't really um, remember everything. And it, it felt like it had some sort of, it felt like it haunted me. Like, what the hell just happened? Because now the way I'm viewing life is just so radically different. And being 16 with this new way of seeing the world is really difficult. I mean, most people at that age, you know, I was a sophomore in high school. So, most people are either worried about like, you know, relationships and, you know, teenage things, um, yeah. maybe trying to get drunk and or doing drugs and experimenting, finding out who you are. And I'm grappling with this deeply existential crisis of what the hell just happened to me. And why am I here? Um, so coming back was was very difficult. I was on a high for about like you know, three to six months, like, oh my God, I'm so thankful to be alive. Um, but then a lot of the existential dread started to seep in. And I think I was just grappling with a lot of philosophical questions of like, mm-hmm. you know, why did I come back? I felt like I was really kind of accepting my faith there. And, um, you know, why did the doctor save me? Like, I was about to go on this this journey and I don't think I I really should, like, I don't think I really should be here. Um, you know, now I'm so thankful that that happened. Um, but you know, these are some of the really deep uh, emotions that I was that I was grappling with during that time. Um, so I had a you know sank into a pretty deep depression at times. Uh, a lot of kind of suicidal thinking, and you know, the suicidal thinking was more along the lines of wanting to bask in that that sense of love because you know, as I said, when I was laying in the cat scan machine. Something told me I was going home, and that sense of home just felt so nourishing, so real, and so exciting. Like, oh wow, this is what we all wait for—this um, one moment to to go. Take this journey, and um, so I just spent a lot of time. I guess like either just thinking about that state and wanting to go back there because it just felt so blissful and and homey. And you know, being here in the world is sometimes really difficult. There's a lot of suffering that happens here, and a lot of a lot of pain to hold on to. And I think I was just really open and, and really sensitive to that coming back, where I really just spent a lot of time trying to escape. And just, I guess, do a lot of daydreaming and, and had a lot of ideation about what would that be like if I could go back there right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so, it was it was a struggle for sure. And, you know, I didn't really have um, the supports around me to really help me process and understand this experience. Like, you know, I remember the principal at my high school, I, I got into some trouble and she was like, you know, you had this near-death experience, like you should be thankful you're alive, like just be thankful for it. And in the back of my mind, it was like, but I don't think you understand psycho-spiritually what's going on with me. Like, this is a very bittersweet experience for me. Yes, I'm thankful to be alive, but like the psycho-spiritual crisis that I'm in, I just don't think you really understand. And so, that was really hard to sit with. I didn't have, you know, any sort of elder teacher that could could see that. Um, I recently came across a, a note, from a high school teacher they sent it to my mom and was like i don't know if you know kyle's like new philosophy on life but like it's really bad and like you should give him another near death experience to wake him up um and it was just because like i came back to school and i was just like i'm not doing any of this stuff this is all bullshit you guys are like just factory (laughs) producing kids like none of this like most of this is irrelevant to actually what i want to be doing in my life um and I just felt like I was wasting a lot of my time there, but you know, I, I stuck it out, thankfully. And but and I think some of the teachers could see that potential and probably thought I was just like pissing it away with this attitude. But um, you know, I was also challenging, you know, their their belief system of public education and how people learn and be like, Well, there's other ways of knowing and being and this just is a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> And so I really stopped doing all my work. I stopped really doing a lot of stuff in high school, um, but somehow passed with flying colors too. So I think everybody saw actually um, how smart I was at the same time. But yeah, yeah. yeah, it was just like...
1: What uh, what was your BA and then you you moved on to, um, uh, oh, sorry, transpersonal psychology, right? So you went straight into finding answers, right?
2: I took four years off after high school, actually, Um, really took some time to figure out like what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, this is when I started to stumble across psychedelics and had some pretty profound experiences that that opened me up. And it was after those experiences, um, I really wanted to dedicate my life to studying, you know, these different states of consciousness and and the healing aspect. So yeah, um, you know, after some bigger experiences, after that near death experience, I just became so fascinated. That I, I needed to find a program where I could like continue my education and really kind of study these states of consciousness. And you know, this is where I found a lot of great teachers to help help guide me through what I was going through.
1: So, did you find relief then in the psychedelics? Did, were, were some questions answered? Did you could you, you know step back into the physical reality after those?
2: Yeah. The first experience I had was um, with psilocybin. Um, I had some experience with cannabis beforehand, but um, I found it to be interesting, but it wasn't until I had this psilocybin experience where um, it really helped me to relive my near-death experience in a sense. Um, And that experience really, I guess, like recontextualized some of the trauma that I went through and provided some sort of visual aid to possibly what I went through. So, with the psilocybin experience, I think i was 19 um and my uh, a friend of mine just had it we went out into the woods and uh, it came on really strong um and i started watching my body dissolve and uh it started becoming really scary and so i remember i watched my friend puke his up and you know i'm, I'm thinking like oh my god like maybe we're dying are you supposed to puke on these things like i'm very uneducated and i went into it with kind of a uh an escapist mindset. Like I just wanted to try to escape my reality. Um, Probably not the best mindset to go into a trip with, but I was so naive, didn't really think about anything. And, you know, ended up thankfully being a a very, very positive experience, terrifying, but positive. Um, But I remember as it really started to hit, we were walking down this little trail and and there was a little rock in the middle of the trail and said, I think I need to sit here on this rock and die. (laughs) And, when I when I had that feeling, it felt like, you know, all of a sudden I was I, I started to die and I said, This this is this feeling's very familiar. Um so at that moment I thought I was like overdosing and you know, I didn't really know the psilocybin is pretty safe and chances of that happening are pretty, pretty low. And, but, you know, the psychological effect, it really Mm -hmm. reminded me of dying. And as I started to slip into that, it got really scary. I I entered into like a a void of nothingness, Um, but it started to become, it turned into a mystical experience and and I had some sort of interaction with these entities. Um, And I didn't, Know about Terence McKenna or Rick Strassman's uh, DMT research and and talking about these entities that you know maybe inhabit this tryptamine space, but um, you know the way that like I guess I was viewing it was when I found myself in this space. I said, "Wow, this feels really familiar. Um, this I feel like I've been here before." And so I asked these these entities, "I was like, you know, have I been here before?" And they said, thousands of times." And I said, Oh shit. Okay. Well, if I've been here thousands of times, um, and if this feels like death, then this must be some sort of death Bardo. Is this the death Bardo? Is this where you go when you die? And they just looked at me and said, eh, more or less so. So I'm like trying to put two and two together. I go, okay, if I've been here thousands of times, if this is a death Bardo, then you must be God or you must be the things that I talked to that one night that gave me all this information. So I asked him, I said, you know, are you God or are you, are you the entities or, or beings that gave me this information about life? And they just looked at me and said, eh, more or less so. So it was this total trickster archetype, um, not really giving me much information. But having that visual experience, I think, helped me kind of put... Um, put my near-death experience into context a little bit. You know, maybe it provided me with some sort of visual aid to be like, maybe this is what happened. Maybe this is the thing that I talked to. And it gave me a sense of comfort because as I said before, there was just this... Felt sense of my bones that I went somewhere, and something gave me information, and I just didn't have the, the the visual aid for it. And we live in a very visually oriented culture, right? Like seeing is believing. We need to see things to actually believe it. Um, and there, I think there's so many different ways of knowing, and you know, I think in the West we kind of disregard those, you know, maybe intuition, right? How do you explain intuition? It's a feeling, right? And people are ah, yeah, that may not be so valid. But for me, like that was. It was like, I just felt sense of knowing. I know I something happened. So, yeah, the psilocybin experience, I think, just helped me kind of reprocess that trauma and, and gave me maybe a narrative to work with. Um, and that was just so fascinating. And the the eerie thing was like, how the hell could I eat this like thing that grows out of the earth that's natural, that produced a near-death experience all over again for me. Um, So just that experience alone just fascinated me so much. Um, And it really kind of got me on track. It it got me fascinated about life again. I was so thankful to be alive after that point. Um, And, you know, I was like, I think I need to dedicate my life to to studying this. I'm just, you know, Mm. too fascinated by it. It's just too interesting not to explore.
1: (laughs) And why do you think the entities told you you've you've been here thousands of times? What do you reckon that means?
2: I don't know. Like I said, like in that experience, it felt like it was a realm, you know, some sort of like death bardo realm. And it's like, you know, if we believe in reincarnation, could this be? you know, some sort of realm where we go to? Could it be some sort of spirit world where we go to? Um, so, in that moment, that's what it felt like. Like, my my spirit, my soul has been to wherever this place is. I um, mean, I guess, like, when I think about it and, um, and when I think about, like, the near-death experience and just life and death in general, like, I kind of always say, like... Uh, think especially thinking about these really far out psychedelic experiences where like you kind of leave your body and, and you start looking at your hand and you go what is all this you know um that you know it's like when we die, we go into this, this cosmic womb, this cosmic void. So that's where we're born from. And that's where we go to. Um, And maybe there is something so familiar about wherever we do go. If, if, you know, if you believe that your life continues on, if your soul continues on um, you know, does it have to go somewhere? And maybe there's this this realm that we, we go to. Um, for me, as I was dying, like I said, it felt like I was going home. So maybe, you know, I've been to this place before on a soul level uh, and maybe it felt like home to me. So I don't know. It's so hard to actually like yeah. know sometimes, right? It's Life is such a mystery. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, this kind of reminds me, a few days I was talking, a few days ago I was talking with my sister, and I just—I was actually talking about uh, Christopher Bache's work, um, and about Ian Stevens's work with uh, kids that remember past lives, and about re- I asked, you know, do you believe in reincarnation? This kind of stuff, and she's like, I'm on the fence. This kind of stuff, and I started ta- telling her about Ian Stevens's work and um, Chris Bache's book, uh, Life Cycles. And at one point, she stopped me. And she said, you know, uh, my, my nephew, he has. Told her at least two or three times. He's like on his five, you know, but he's, before he's told her at least two three times, something along the lines of, you know, mommy, when when you die, you 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 then go into a new body, something like that. Mm. So, you know, it kind of it, it's it's, and then she's like, did you hear hear that on TV? Did you hear that in school? No, no, I just know, I just know, and it just kind of, you know, when we're young and we don't have all these psychological layers on top maybe we can tap into that space more and yeah. Um, So yeah, so what, um, so, okay. So you, you, you did some, some psychedelic, uh, you had some psychedelic experiences. What was then your journey like through, um, you know, doing the BA, doing the MA, how, how did your understanding of uh, basically the world life, the universe uh, existence, how did that kind of transform or develop
2: yeah thanks um you know i when i started my uh b a it, it was such an interesting program it it felt like i was just chatting with an old advisor from there It kind of felt like hogwarts um it was such experiential learning where like um you know i just had classes in like um, shamanic practices. I got trained in Reiki. Uh, you know, I had like um, a dream retreat where I'd go to like my teacher's house, and um, we'd spend the week camping in his yard and, and doing dream analysis. Um, you know, I was able to uh, do holotropic breathwork and get school credit for it, and ended up studying with teachers there. But. Something that that really stands out was when I was taking, a, I think it was an eco-psychology course, and the teacher um, that was teaching it is a shamanic practitioner, um, part Cherokee and Lakota and European roots. And, you know, I, I told him about my story and he said, you know, that's a shame. Um, You know, if you lived in a traditional culture, the elders would have stepped in to teach you this new way of being and seeing the world. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you grew up in your culture and you didn't have that. And so you had to really kind of figure it out on your own. So, you know, the way that I really see uh, the work that I was doing during my undergrad there was really trying to explore all these different frameworks um, for trying to understand my experience. Um, and and really, it was a, a time for a lot of self-exploration. Like I was doing a lot of deep inner work in that program um, and just so thankful that it was around. I mean, I, I think about that and go, that was a very, very unique experience. But it really kind of provided the framework for me to to explore these states of consciousness, helped me to develop some theoretical orientations around it and think about it, um, you know, on, on different levels from, you know, di- different traditions. And um, yeah, so I think that was probably the, the thing that really stuck out about this whole process is um, really just developing more insight and frameworks around these experiences. So, and and it's interesting um, to kind of see my evolution here. Um, I was just thinking about this other day uh, during a course that we teach just, you know, I had this really big experience and then, um, you know, tradition there's, there weren't a lot of transpersonal psychology programs out there. Most of them are master level programs. Um, And, you know, you think you have to really um, learn the foundations of psychology before kind of jumping into the, the, the mystical and and spiritual traditions and techniques. But I was just so blown open that I needed to find a place where I could really focus on that. And so, you know, I really spent a lot of time there kind of, in these non-ordinary states um, by doing so much inner work. And then with my master's, it was almost trying to ground that experience by really focusing on the body um, and really how do we take these experiences and, you know, process them through our body. And that was one of the reasons why I focused on a lot of the somatic research was, you know, how do we deal with trauma when it's like I spent so much time, I guess, like in these ethereal realms um, and it was really ungrounding and and sometimes I felt like I was just like kind of way far out there in, in la la land most days, just kind of thinking about this stuff. Um, and that was, I think the one thing that breathwork taught me was how do we really s- embody these, these um, experiences and how can we work with the body to process it? Um, especially with the early psychedelic use was like very cognitive, very spiritual, very out there, but it left me really, really ungrounded. And, um, I think I needed to come back to my body. So just kind of also thinking about that evolution of being completely blown open and spending time in in that space and then really trying to um, take an approach uh, really with like trauma informed approaches, the somatics, really ground and and start to be here in the moment.
1: Mm -hmm. This is actually a perfect segue. I was going to ask you because you seem uh, just looking over your website and who you've studied with, um, you seem like... You know your breathwork uh very well, so can you give can you give us um i'm actually i what's uh, three weeks from now i scheduled our first um breath work workshop so i i i That's myself real. am yeah I, it's not gruffy and it's some other i forgot the person that runs that but it's fairly prominent person um but i i am actually fairly uninitiated to to you know the this modality could you give myself and the listeners a little bit of a crash course what what is breathwork um and what what does it do to the body and the mind when when one you know engages with this modality
2: yeah um so breathwork is an umbrella term um really just A lot of different breathing modalities out there right if we look at um, different cultures and traditions they use the breath in all sorts of ways but you know if you look cross-culturally breath and life force and spirit were all words you know used together um and so you know i think in a lot of traditional cultures they really kind of honor the breath and the power of breathing and just really connected to to the life force i mean you know i think about this um in general you know, we come into the world with our first breath. And, you know, as I was laying in that cat scan machine, you know, my breathing slowing down is like, you know, when, when is my last breath going to be there? So, you know, breath has always been tied to this life force, this, the spiritual essence of who we are. Um, it's what keeps us going. So, you know, there's a lot of different traditions. The tradition that I come out of, um, is in the lineage of holotropic breath work. And so, um, yeah, I studied holotropic breath work, uh, at, Burlington College, my teachers are holotropic breathwork uh, certified and they've been running workshops for 25 years and just a disclaimer for like trademark sense. so like I have experience participating in holotropic breathwork workshops but that's actually not what my training is in and I don't facilitate um, holotropic breathwork. My teachers are passing their work on as dream shadow transpersonal breathwork Um, and so in this lineage um, so it comes out of the work of Stan and Stina Grof and Stan Grof is a Czechoslovakian American psychiatrist, and he did a lot of uh, research. In the realm of of psychedelics I mean he's probably as Albert Hoffman um, the father of LSD so you know if I'm the the, the father of uh, of LSD then Stan Groff is the Godfather <laughs> you know he's had so many different experiences I think he's had over maybe like forty five hundred to maybe five thousand um, experiences sitting with people in clinical situations um so He was uh, experimenting with with psychedelics early on in the 50s and 60s, left Czechoslovakia, came over to America, and um, was still continuing research uh, down in, in Maryland and uh, using psilocybin. And then the counterculture hit, and all this research started to dry, dry up. Um, and so, he found himself over at Esalen, a little hotspot over in Big Sur, California. And he was uh, a scholar resident over there, uh, writing his books up and kind of maybe looking over some of his clinical notes. And um, he was just invited to, you know, lead some workshops. And there was a lot of stuff going on in that time. A lot of experiential therapies came out of Esalen. And, you know, um, the one thing... And some of Groff's work, um, he wrote in LSD psychotherapy that you know, for helping to resolve people's like maybe unprocessed psychedelic trip, sometimes breathing heavily would then activate their experience and help to resolve whatever process. So, you know, he had a little bit of this knowledge and then coming over to Esalen, um, you know, with all these different traditions that possibly use breath um, from the yogic traditions, um, meditation traditions. And so him and his wife, Christina, ended up developing This breathing technique that involves deep intensified breathing, um, wearing eye shades. I guess you don't have to, but, you know, being in a, a low lit room, something that possibly covering the eyes just to really help the internal process. Um, with loud evocative music. And by engaging in this practice, it can really, um, kind of elicit and foster these non ordinary states of consciousness, um, could be really similar to, to a psychedelic experience. And so, you know, he really kind of took his framework and, and his work with psychedelics and, uh, and applied it to this holotropic breathwork modality. And, um, It's, it's very fascinating. Um, the, the amount of, you know, just the variety of experiences that, that people can have. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of different breathwork techniques out there and I, you know, see a a rise in all sorts of modalities that people are offering right now, which is, is really wonderful, um, to just see people get out there. It's a very powerful tool, kind of cliche at times, right? Like take a deep breath, be able to control your emotions, but there's also a lot of science behind that as well. Um, as for the non ordinary state experience with breathing, I mean, I don't think we necessarily know from, you know, um, neuroscience and whatnot actually what's going on there. You know, I guess you could correlate it to a change in, um, you know, blood alkalinity does change the pH of the blood a little bit by deeply um, breathing. But, uh, you know, as for some of these like really big transpersonal experiences, I don't really know what's happening there. And and that's what's the fascinating thing about the technique. Um, You know, from my experience of studying a lot of different like traditions and and studying the psychedelic world is that there's all these different vehicles to get to these non-ordinary states, whether it's chanting, singing, drumming, um, you know, isolation in like a a cave traditionally um, to breathing and to plant medicines and psychedelics. And, all of the experiences that we experience with these techniques—they're all inside of us. You can access it always. It's—it's it's all inside, um, and these are just different vehicles and, and different just tools to get to that similar state. You know, there might be different flavors, um, right? Like psychedelics, obviously, foster a very profound experience at times um, and a little bit different than breath work, but also can be very similar to breath work. And so I really kind of focus on this internal experience. And these are just different pathways to get there.
1: And um, what kind of uh, before and after work, in terms of integrating the experiences, do you... I know you. I think you facilitate the the workshops, the breath work uh, workshops. Correct? Do you do actual kind of like talk, work with people to help them integrate experiences? Is is that necessary? Do you think or?
2: It really depends. Um, you know, sometimes people have some really big experiences that they want to process. Um, you know, if they're working with a therapist um, that is open to kind of exploring non-ordinary states, I definitely encourage people to um, reach out to do therapy with somebody. Um, you know, the integration process after breathwork, um, we really focus on art, and so after you have a breathwork session. Like right after you get up off the mat and you go into another room and you do some artwork and so that's really part of your integration process and then for more post workshop um, you know sometimes people want to reach out and just like chat about their experience but I also really encourage people to you know if they have a therapist to to bring some of that work there but um, you know I think the important part of integration is being able to embody some of the insights that like you, you experienced. Um, you know, this is a really important part of psychedelic work. Um, you know, I, I had a student in the past that um, was from Brazil and uh, part of some of the ayahuasca traditions down there. And, you know, she was saying, you know, the real work begins after the ceremony ends, right? Like, um, you know, we can have these big experiences, but they only offer some, uh, a glimpse into what is possible. Um, mm. And a lot of the work, is actually in the 3D reality. And that's sometimes really challenging. Um, how do we take what we experience and translate it to the day to day and really embody it too, right? Um, and I think this is like, you know, when I was so caught up in a lot of it, just hanging out in the ethereal realms, it's like, well, I'm not really doing anything with it. How do I bring that down and, and try to give back to the community in a sense, um, instead of holding on to it all the time? And so, you know, that's definitely psychedelics today has been a huge integration project for me to be able to, I guess, like work with the experience and, and pass on um, some of the, some of my own experiences and, and information to get out there. Um, so, and a huge a focus has been on integration with that project.
1: Yeah, I can see you guys really talk about integration, and I think that's that's really the yeah, like you say that that that's where the work really lies in, because um, you know, you you might be able to you know unearth some trauma, but unearthing it, uh, you know, you have to still process it somehow, and it's good to have multiple tools to do the job. You know, some people won't be doing psychedelics; they have kids, they have whatever, or they're just scared so it, i'm actually really really looking forward to see what this um breathwork <laughs> you know what comes out of this i'm very excited for it is it uh, an kind of online breathwork session no no it's it's um it's in person it's cool. it's in person uh, th- 3 hours long i believe it's an hour and a half cool. um and then some you know before and after stuff so yeah looking forward to that but um just i just wanted to ask you know you talk about you do spiritual emergence coaching. What is spiritual emergence, just for the listeners?
0: Yeah,
2: um, so spiritual emergence is a term that was coined, again, by uh, Stan and Christina Groff. And um, it's kind of like a, a play on words, meaning that there's a deep psycho-spiritual crisis that's unfolding. Um, But it also provides an opportunity to emerge from that experience and maybe into a a higher level of functioning, a higher level of consciousness, um, and really being able to kind of step into a new way of being. And so it really just talks about these experiences, when transformative experiences With non-ordinary states, holotropic experiences, spontaneous experiences, can really start to create crisis in our life. So, you know, a perfect example would be that near-death experience, right? Had this really profound experience. It really cracked me open. There was a lot of like spiritual, mystical, philosophical undertones to it. But I mean, it left me feeling pretty depressed and in in a crisis. Um, And so, we talk about it as a spectrum, spiritual emergence in... um, on on the one side it's just you know it's a process and it may not be that extreme i was functioning i mean even though i was depressed and was going through a lot of this existential like angst and despair I was able to go to school. I was able to, you know, keep relationships. I was functional. On the on the other extreme is when it starts to move into um, spiritual emergency. And that's when, you know, it could look like, you know, quote unquote, schizophrenia, psychosis, mania, when it's, you know, not being contained very well and somebody needs, um, either, you know, probably like a higher level of care, they need people possibly looking after them for a bit. um, Because their process is either so heightened, like kind of, you know, just really out of control, and and maybe they do need someplace safe, that they can um, sit and process whatever they're going through. Because these experiences can get really, really intense, right? Um, Mm. And then you get into, you know, some of the thinking of like, am I real? What's going on? If nothing's real, then, you know, how do I live in the world? Or, wow, I found out that like I'm God and Jesus, so I can do whatever I want now. Um, And so, I mean, it's all possible when when we start tapping into these non-ordinary states. And so, um, yeah, how do we help people move through that or, or just help contain it so nothing dangerous happens? No harm
1: is done. So uh, from your bio, um, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that you, you work with, um, at-risk teenagers in crisis like this is, uh, so you, you actually work with I folks used to, to. Kind of... that
2: was was yeah, that was an old job that I, um, had right out of college. I, I worked in a residential home with at-risk teens for about three years. Um, so really dealing with them either, um, you know, they'd sometimes they'd go to the hospital and get assessed and they would come down to our program and usually we were dealing with a lot of suicidal thinking um suicide attempts and just like you know risky and harmful behavior where they needed to get stabilized um and the other place that i worked at was uh, another residential home that was for people going through early episode psychosis and so you know uh some of those people probably would have fit into that spiritual emergence realm where they had an experience that they were really kind of cracked open. Um, and other times, you know, people didn't really resonate with that, and, and that didn't really they didn't really fit into that framework. Um, but we didn't really focus there on spiritual emergence. Um, it was really we were trying to create a space for people to you know make sense of their own experience without needing to label it as spiritual emergence, as schizophrenia, as psychosis. Um, so yeah, I've definitely spent a lot of time. Um, in crisis
1: management that's for sure it seems like any any type of this spiritual emergence in the western model would just be labeled as psychosis wouldn't it pretty much yeah
2: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, usually when somebody has uh, those types of breaks, it looks very much like mania, psychosis, and and schizophrenia. And so, there's a really great quote that I like by Stan, and I think it highlights the importance of this nuanced conversation is that, um, you know, kind of like coming from the spiritual traditions and thinking that all, you know, these Every experience is is spiritual in a sense. But sometimes that's not the case, right? And I think sometimes we want to romanticize these different states. And maybe, you know, that's actually possibly doing harm to a person because we're not providing a level of care to them that they may need. Um, there's an example, uh, a teacher of mine told me this story of a, uh, some people on an African safari and they, they stop by this tribe and there's somebody that came up to the, uh, the vehicle and they're acting all out of line and, and whatnot. And somebody on the f- safari was like, Oh, that must be the village shaman. Right. Um, from an anthropological point of view, the shaman very much sometimes will look schizophrenic or psychosis, right? Maybe working in trance states, talking about spirit encounters, talking about interacting with nature and and whatnot. Um, And from, you know, the Western psychological world, all right, you're hearing auditory hallucinations, seeing things that aren't there. I mean, that is, you know, the definition of of psychosis and schizophrenia. Um, You know, so one of the villagers came up and said, oh no, he's just crazy. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I think it's just, it's an important story to share that, um, you know, we really need to be careful when approaching it. And, um, you know, I don't always like that pathologizing language of, you know, this person's crazy, this person has this disease or or, or whatnot. Um, You know, because sometimes People are going through those experiences and they necessarily don't feel that way. Um, you know, there's lots of people that I worked with that, you know, wouldn't really, um, you know, attach to that label as having psychosis, even though they were having very extreme experiences. Um, you know, if for some reason, it almost, it gave me more hope to say, you know, you're going through something very deep and profound and, you know, if you're willing to work with it and if we can create that container for it, you know, I feel like you can get on the other side versus creating kind of this more pathologizing language that maybe gives somebody a life sentence of a disease that, you know, may or may not Dign- exist. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I lo- I love what you guys with Joe are doing um, at psychedelics today. I love the podcast and, you know, I've I've listened to dozens of, of episodes, some of them multiple times. Um <laughs> oh, thank and you. I wanna thank you for, yeah, I wanna thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, what's what's kind of on the horizons for for you, not just with psychedelics today, but any, any other kind of projects coming down the pipeline?
2: um oh man there's so many different things um and it's so hard to keep track of everything especially as the psychedelic space is continuing to grow but yeah the psychedelics today today, and we're really focusing on a lot of education we have a course for clinicians and therapists um just to kind of get um some psychedelic literacy just to maybe understand um these states and you know if you have clients coming and and disclosing um you know these conversations and you know their use how to support them. um, in that and without trying to say, oh, this is terrible, you know, how can we really um, support people? And so, um, yeah, just working on a lot of different education Um I was just working on a young and psychedelics course, had uh, wrapped up a course a few months ago that was really fun to put together with uh, Dr. Ito Cohen about psychedelics in the shadow and um, got a philosophy course, an introduction to philosophy and psychedelics course in the pipeline. So, really just working on the education and then personally um, moving more into therapy. Um, so just trying to move into that some of the, all of that got paused once covid hit and um dealing with uh just the state boards and stuff like that so um yeah i'm hoping to uh move more into into that world pretty soon
1: so being so able to offer we'll support be working to with one-to-one clients this kind of thing online yeah. and
2: yeah, one-to-one clients online, um, in person, when that feels safe. Uh, and, you know, hopefully uh, in the future, psychedelic medicines. Um, I was hoping to do a little bit of ketamine psycho-assisted therapy. Some of that got put on pause. But, um, you know, I think it's it's definitely in the pipeline and in the future. So I'm going to start working towards that that path, which I'm excited for. You mean, you
1: mean to become a, a, a therapist a, uh, to help folks with ketamine-assisted therapy, is it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So being, um, you know, a therapist and the client would, you know, get a dose of ketamine to help, um, you know, them process whatever's going on, and then and then do the therapy aspect. So helping them integrate their experience and, and make sense of it and, and work through it. Um, so that's that's, that's part awesome. of my goals. You know, it's always been my goal ever since I got into a lot of this stuff at nineteen. I always wanted to be a a psychedelic therapist, and um, you know, when I started to go to school for all this stuff. Um, you know, I really thought it was really, really far off, but, um, you know, now it seems to be more of a reality than ever. And, you know, there's lots of different avenues to go down nowadays and we have legal tools now. Um, you know, ketamine is, is legal and does have some psycho, like psychedelic effects, um, transpersonal, even though it falls outside the scope of traditional psychedelic, um, but you know, some of the clinical research uh, suggests that you know it's, it can be really effective with uh, some forms of depression and, and suicidal ideation. So that, you know, really thinking these uh, as tools and how can we best um, serve clients if they're appropriate for, for that type of therapy. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see how the, the field unfolds in the f- in the next few years. I mean, everything's happening so quickly. it's, it's, it's a lot to keep track of, but exciting. It
1: is it is it is well Kyle I suppose unless you have any anything else to add to the you know to the conversation I, I know I may have omitted something you want to talk about um maybe you could tell tell folks where they can find you know you your work your your blogs and everything
2: yeah thanks um yeah if you want to follow us at psychedelics today that's uh, psychedelicstoday.com and then we're on most podcast platforms um google podcast apple itunes stitcher wherever you listen to podcasts um so check that out and you know if you're interested in learning about um the psychedelic field you know we have um two episodes a week usually one an interview and one kind of like a, a dialogue between joe and i just kind of processing what's happening in the space and kind of um yeah, doing an analysis of what's going on. And then um if you want to follow some of my personal journey, that's over at uh, settingsunwellness.com and then same on Instagram and, and all the social handles. Um so that's Setting Sun Wellness. So
1: Awesome. We're gonna have all those um links in there. Uh yeah, listen, once again, Kyle, it was first of all, it was great to hear your story. The the um you know, I had heard a little bit of your story with the near-death experience on some of the podcasts, but you know, you don't talk much about that. So it was actually a pretty powerful kind of the way you described. It It was pretty, pretty damn powerful. So um, thank you for sharing that, you You know, thank you for kind of opening up with, with, with the listeners. And um, yeah, once again, thank you so much for the work you're doing with Joe at psychedelics today. I highly encourage anyone listening. If you're interested in this field, um it's one of the best resources out there to educate yourself so thank you Kyle for spending the time with us today and you know best of luck with your projects in the future
2: Yeah thanks so much for having me on Christian appreciate it
0: Thank you for listening to Connecting Minds We hope you enjoyed this conversation and found it interesting, illuminating, or inspiring. For episode show notes, links, and further information on our guests, please visit ChristianYordanov.com. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with someone who might also enjoy it. Thank you for being here.